0: Keeping silence could mean the difference between somebody making the choice to stay or leave.
1: Sego, scan go. Welcome to Sacred Teachings. I'm Jenny Doctor. This episode is called The Safest Place. We're in a time where nothing seems right. The world and our lives are out of balance. Many of us are struggling and looking for the safest place so we can regain our balance. In this episode, Peter Downey talks with the Reverend Canon Debbie Royals, my good friend, sister, and colleague.
2: Thanks, Jenny. I want you to think for a moment about the power of words. Divorced from the meaning that we place on any word, it's really just simply a collection of letters in a certain order. But because of the cultural and historical significance we place on those letters, a word can become, all at the same time, frightening, inspiring, challenging, and in so many ways, just powerful and profoundly intense. Suicide is such a word. Ceremony is another. Both words have become integral parts of the life of Reverend Canon Debbie Royals. She is Pasqua Yaqui from Tucson, Arizona. She's an Episcopal priest, an author, a retreat leader, and an educator. And as you're about to hear, her experiences with both darkness and light, and her passions for the healing power of ceremony, have made her a strong and active advocate for suicide prevention. We began our conversation by discussing what that word, suicide, means to her.
0: Well, I think that my first reaction now has changed quite a bit over the years, and part of that is my own personal experience with being uh, suicidal. And I think the first thing I think about is compassion. I know now what it feels like to get to that place. I know why, you know, the processes that uh, went through my own mind. So if it's if it's something that I can then share with other people and say, um, let's talk about this a little bit differently. And part of that, I think, also applies to the fact that it has become. For so many people, which is what I really railed against, um, a spiritual battle, you know, um, people that, especially in my own uh, village in the old Fosperiaque community, the um, impact of the Roman Catholic missionaries telling people that the, the folks who committed suicide were going to go to hell. You know, they were damned for life. I mean, forever, for eternity, never to be returned. Um, and, you know, that goes so contrary to our belief of, of the spiritual essence of a person existing from the beginning of time and returning into that, you know, what we call the yoania, the flower word. Um, It just was so counter to that. But, boy, a lot of folks just bought into it. And then, of course, it went dark, right? Because with people thinking that someone who um, has either attempted or been successfully suicidal, that person is damned for the rest of eternity, Um, they just made it a shame. You know, now it's something to be ashamed of, so hide it, don't talk about it, Uh, keep it in the dark, prevent you know, anybody from knowing that you know anyone or anything about this. Um, and that, of course, as we all know, I think um, contributed greatly uh, to this becoming an epidemic.
2: Did you have that shame ab- about your attempt too? Was it was it difficult to get to the stage where you could talk about it?
0: Um, no, I don't think so. And part of that. um probably has more to do with the way that i dealt with it afterwards which was to immediately um go to an elder and to um go into ceremony you know to uh find a way to put myself right within the community and in my relationship with god and you know that wasn't i don't mean right by i was wrong i mean knowing that somehow something was not in balance and I needed to get back in balance. That
2: idea of honoring or remembering or celebrating ceremony is, is, a, is really a critical part of recovery.
0: Absolutely. And I think it is a major part of prevention. And that is why when I uh, now speak to people, um, work with our elders, work with the young people in the community, The title of my presentations when I present is The Spirituality of Suicide because people need to know there's another side than what we have heard and where the basis and the foundation for healing is in spirituality. Prevention is in spirituality. Living a full life is in spirituality Um, and moving in that direction. You know, we were talking about Um, The COVID virus and uh, politics and all of the reasons why, you know, we could go back through history and mark different periods of time when Native peoples, the sense of oppression, the sense of hopelessness and helplessness has been amplified. Um, And this is certainly one of those times, right? Um, because of all the inequities that we live in in the world that we live in, so I try and take the focus away from that and talk about being empowered instead of what are our strengths and our survival and our resilience, the fact that we are still here after uh eons and eons of time, you know rather than to think about um, what might happen, or or how things aren't working in our on our behalf, um, and to instead take that other uh, perspective.
2: I know you've said that one of the, I think one of the great tools that you bring to your work is the act of listening. But there has to be some teaching too, I suppose, involved in in this kind of recovery.
0: Well, and I think listening and teaching in um, the way that my elders have. Um, sort of guided me is maybe a little different. It's not didactic, you know. It's it is reflective, um, and I think when we talk about listening, when you sit with young people, it's really important for us to listen to all the reasons why they feel like they are struggling. Uh, because I don't think that for at least a generation um, my generation and maybe even my mom's generation my mom is going to be 99 in april and some of the conversations that we have and of course the memories that i have with my mom and with my grandmother are recent enough that we're not talking ancient history we're talking you know within generations that i can talk about how traumas have um, been brought into Lived into and perpetuated in our communities. And one of them is that that sort of non native value of children are seen and not heard. Um, You know, I said to the uh, elders, and I say this to the young people I'm not going to say a word. I sit in a room with them sometimes for an hour without anyone speaking. Until they finally get that I'm not going, I didn't come there to lecture them. I came there to hear what they had to say. And then when they finally start talking, they just don't stop. But the sad part is, um, you know, when we begin with prayers and ceremony and we end in prayers and ceremony, and sometimes we even stop in the middle because of something that someone is sharing. To really mark, you know, the experience that that person is having if they are sad or angry or, you know, um, expressing a very strong emotion that we acknowledge it and come around them so that they witness that their experience, whether it's a life experience or an intense experience, is all blessed and honored. It's all sacred. And that there is someone hearing what they're saying. Now, oftentimes, unfortunately, what that also means is that the young people begin to open up because what their colleagues, friends, relationships have said, they themselves know as well, and they can say, "Yeah, that happened to me too," or "I feel that way as well." Do you
2: mind if I ask you just a bit about about your own history? Because one of the things that that I I wonder about is when you when you reach that I don't know if darkness is is the right word or that level of despair when you've seen that edge and you know there's a choice does that shake your confidence do you not trust yourself after an experience like
0: that um well okay so there are a couple of things at play here that I think are important um and one of the things that I talk about with young people is knowing yourself. Um, and knowing yourself, what I mean is being aware when you're not dealing with things so that you're not making the load so heavy that you deal with them as they come, rather than you know stuffing, 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 stuffing until it's uh, so enormous that there is no way. Out um, so that's that's the first thing I would say is that I am much more aware of myself now, and when I get to a place that I know that I'm approaching the sort of stuffing and rather than dealing with, I take the time out to go and do something about it, to talk with the people, to uh, relieve myself of some of my uh, duties. You know, not to expose myself to even more responsibility and things to do. And, uh, and I think the other thing for me is I don't think that I felt despair. I think that the word that I use is helpless and hopeless. Um, and helpless and hopeless, I think, are better words for me because. Uh, it's good for me to acknowledge that I do not have control over everything in my life. And that's okay. Um, and that we all have a level of helplessness. So when I think about that, I think about surrender and vulnerability and, uh, particularly, um, experiences that I can relate to, for instance, in ceremony when Um, we do a sweat lodge, for instance, you're completely helpless. You are, you know, completely at the mercy of what's going on in that environment. And you have to give yourself over to it. The hopelessness is the piece that um, we do have control over. Um, And when I begin to feel that there are, and I don't know that I feel this, and I You know, I remember uh, one time um, Martin Brokenleg and I were talking about this hopelessness is really hard to be if you're a person who is grounded in some of our traditional practices, like getting up with the sunrise and greeting the morning and being grateful for another day, um, ending the day at the... You know, being prayerful throughout the day, marking the middle of the day, stopping when the sun sets and knowing that it's becoming that transition from light to dark. Um, you know, greeting the night when it arrives before you sleep and unburdening yourself of all the things that didn't go the way you wanted to that day, but knowing that tomorrow's another day. It's really hard to find hopelessness when you have incorporated that into your life because your practice is the other direction. It's, there is hope, you know, there is gratitude. There is um, so much to be grateful for so much to be happy about. So that's another practice that I, of course, begin with the young people as well as myself. And I tell them, you know, this is part of what helped me is, The elders, when I went into ceremony, asked me what were the things that I thought that if I had never been able to experience ever again, what would I have missed? And they immediately put me into the position of recognizing my children, my grandchildren, my family, my environment, the people around me, my friends the work that i had done how many years of investment uh, in nursing uh, for 30 years almost of what that meant to me how many babies i had watched being born how many elders i had sat with when they made their transition and boy i tell you just it was oh my gosh how could i have forgotten these things so that's why i really talk about practices of gratitude and and being Traditional you know the four times of the day of prayer and why that's important, and why that has helped us to be resilient and survive
2: it's it's so clear to me that that helplessness you're describing we tend to see it as a weakness, but it's but it but recognizing it is anything but
0: absolutely I am probably one of the happiest people in the world now <laughs> I don't think that there's when I am not happy, I know it. Um, and that's why it's so apparent when I say that, because it's the, it's the odd day, right? And it's noticeable, it's recognizable. That's one of those things that I know, oh, gosh, I need to do something here. Why am I not feeling really good about things? And that's part of the conversation that I have with young people as well. You know, they have been forced to grow up too quickly, or they think. That they've been forced to grow up too quickly, and of course, our um, the situation of poverty and the you know the cycle of poverty that keeps being repeated in our communities sometimes reinforces that because it tells people you know you've got to get out and start earning a living you need to stand on your own two feet that whole idea of independence is so detrimental to native people. Because it is so opposite what our values are, which is interdependence. I cannot live without you. You cannot live without me. I need you. You need me. We are the strength. Not me is the strength. Do you feel at all
2: extraordinary that you that you that you did survive?
0: I look at this as um, as um, being the the, um, sort of seed for the work that I was called to do. Um, And part of my um, coming out on the other side of this has also been that it gave me clarity on what my purpose in life was. Because I think that we are not, at times, again, given the opportunity in our life growing up to really... Think about and acknowledge uh, what we think our purpose in life is. You know, I also serve as a priest in the Episcopal Church in a congregation that is not native, and it is incredibly amazing to me that when you talk with people older than I who still don't know why they were he- why they are here, what was their what was their reason for being here? I have a group that I lead. And it's called living with loss. And in the process of grieving, uh, sometimes people will say, "Well, I still don't know why I'm here and they aren't." You know. And I think about that, and I think how sad it is that we have bought into in the world that we live in a need to take on identity. So, for instance, I tell the young people. Your identity is not your job. So, you know, when you talk to people, oftentimes when you ask them about themselves, they'll tell you what their degrees are, what their job is, how many years they've done it. In the church, you often hear priests talking about the size of their congregation, uh, their average Sunday attendance, how much money they have, the size of their building. And I think, okay, but Who are you? You know, where did you come from? What is, what is, what is, are you about? What is your life? Um, I used to introduce myself as, um, you know, uh, in a sort of non-native way. You know, my name is Debbie Royals. I'm an Episcopal priest. I was a nurse for over 30, almost 30 years. But now I say to people, my name is Debbie Royals. I'm a Paschalaki woman um, who happens to be an Episcopal priest and also lived out my call in life as a nurse for almost 30 years. It's always been my job, my purpose to care for people in a way that helps them care for themselves.
2: I thought you. I heard you say something that I thought was incredibly profound. You said you can't leave yourself. That we live in a world from which many people want to escape, whether that's of our own building, or it's the dynamics and the pressures around us. But you can't. You can't escape. Who you can't escape yourself. You can't leave yourself.
0: Yeah, I think we can't leave ourselves, and who we are is absolutely perfect. You know, I um, often quote. Uh, that in uh, the Old Testament scripture, um, I compare it to some of our uh, sacred teachings in our uh, community. I say when at the end of creation, I said, isn't it interesting that the people who wrote that story said, and God said that it was good. You know, it never says, oh, God thought that, well, that was a good try, but it wasn't perfect. Gosh, I wish I had done a little bit better. You know, God said that it was good. And I remind everyone, you know, that there there's n- anything about us is good. It's not about perfection. It's about goodness.
2: Do you ever speak to the old Debbie? I have
0: journals that I kept along the way. And those journals um, really uh, reflect where I was at different periods of time in my life. And I sometimes look at them and think about the occasions, especially that I think were indicative of the position that I was putting myself in and the continued um, progression of the helplessness and hopelessness that I was feeling. And so I recognize those and think about them and think about what could I have done differently at that point. And honestly, there are very few times that I say to myself, I should have, uh, because I don't know that I should have done anything differently. But I do say to myself, oh, I see now what I didn't see then. And isn't it interesting that somebody noticed something and reflected that to me. And yet I wasn't able to hear it. And that's why it's important for me now to be able to say, if I sent something, I say something because keeping silence could mean the difference between somebody making the choice to stay or leave. You
2: mentioned Dr. Brokenleg and, and, you know, he said that the 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 incidents of suicide. That it, there's such shame still attached to it that it mutes even the professionals in a community from from speaking out. And that's why I I think that that your story and your willingness to sort of talk about all of this is um is just is just so vital.
0: Yeah, and I think he's right. I think under normal circumstances. Part of the reason that suicide has uh, reached epidemic um, levels has been because people, um, the compounding of the trauma um, has just been kept silent. And of course, as you can imagine, that builds up a more and more sense of hopelessness because it's so out of our control that we then become helpless and don't do anything about it. So rather than take any step, no step is taken. Um, and this is, um, I say this with our community, when we have a suicide or even an attempt of a suicide, that's an immediate reaction from me. And I go out there and we talk with the family. I bring people together. I get the elders involved, the person or persons who have been Uh, affected by this most closely we start talking about it Uh, they don't want it talked about in the community and I say no we are going to meet in a circle outside in front of the house we are going to build a fire when people come by they are going to see that we are praying, singing, blessing and trying to give this person a sense of belonging that this is where you belong We need you here. You need us and we need you. I resist talking about darkness, even though a lot of our ceremonies are done in darkness, because darkness has also in our, especially the impact of being missionized, been um, associated with bad, scary things. And I say, no, this is the safest place you can be in your darkest moment. You are your closest to God. I can tell you that because there was nothing about my suicide that wasn't holy. It was the closest I had ever been to God because it was just me and just God. I think Martin Brokenly also says it's one of the most intimate decisions you can make. an intimacy with God At that level cannot be matched by anything else that you do. We can't explain those things. We try and describe them. We try and put language to them, but there isn't language for them. But that is the relationship that I try and build for them um, so that they can see that. And that's why it's important that we do those ceremonies in dark because no matter where you are and what you're feeling, what the facial expressions are, we don't see that of the people sitting in the circle. There might be a little reflection from the firelight, but not much. And sometimes we don't even hear what people are saying because they speak so softly, right? They speak softly. And we, I just say, we don't ask. What did you say? No, we just let it be because that's not our conversation. They're having a conversation with God. That's what a ceremony is.
2: Well, look, I, um, I, I just want to thank you. I mean, I, I think it's, it's for your openness and your willingness to talk about this. I know it's not easy. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. God
0: bless you. That's
2: Reverend Canon Debbie Royals in Tucson, Arizona. I think you can hear how the enduring comfort of ceremony has been so important to her life and work. This idea that ceremony provides a deep connection is echoed by the Tuscarora writer Alicia Elliott. She's from Six Nations of the Grand River, living in Brantford, Ontario. In her recent book, A Mind Spread Out on the Ground, which is a Mohawk phrase for depression, she shares the power of a Haudenosaunee ceremony of condolence, which I I think is so appropriate for anyone recovering from a traumatic event. The grieving person, Elliot writes, is given three strands of wampum, one at a time. One, a soft white deer cloth is used to wipe the tears from their eyes, so they can see the beauty of creation again. Two, a soft feather is used to remove the dust from their ears, so they can hear the kind words of those around them. And three, water, the original medicine is used to wash away the dust settled in their throats that keeps them from speaking, from breathing, from reconnecting with the world outside their grief. The infinite power of words and sacred ceremony. I'm Peter Downey. Thanks for listening.
1: Yahweh, Debbie, and Peter, for your good words to help us make a good mind. Debbie sang for us the ancestor song. It is so appropriate for this time when we have to make ceremonies to enliven and protect our people. Ceremonies vary from First Nation to First Nation. Some are done during the day before the sun sets and some at night. The early settlers did not understand the importance and goodness of ceremony. In many places, they were banned, taken away. They tried to destroy our deep connection to the ancestors, our connection to who we are. We cannot say it enough. We have to remember who we are and where we come from. Our ceremonies fill us with goodness They were given to us by the creator, and our ancestors passed them on generation to generation. In my tradition, we have a ceremony called Ogiwe, or the all-night dance. It is a time to remember our ancestors and relatives who have passed. 99 songs are sung to remember and give thanks for the gift of life. A great feast is also made. My grandpa sang all those songs, and I often drove him to his homelands to take part in the ceremony. When it was over, I felt a great peace and connection to those gone before. Well, let's find and keep the ceremonies. I pray with tobacco, and on days I don't, I feel very unsettled. In that morning space, I bring peace to myself. I pray for others and can only hope that they feel the comfort of my prayer. Hopelessness can become hopeful. Helplessness can become helpful. Our ceremonies will make it so. Oh, no.